Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, March 28th of 2023, where two laypersons, a pastor, and an academician gather each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. Today, we gather at 6.30 a.m., and for Charles Lillard, Minnesota, of course, that's 5.30 a.m., the Sunday is April 2nd. We're working to be faithful to year A, and here's how it works. We prepare independently in advance of the discussion after receiving some formative questions from the week's leader, and then in this podcast, we share, question, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Charles Willard. Bill Hall in St. Petersburg, Florida. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa. And I'm Don Upton in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, today's reading uh, for uh, this Sunday is Matthew 27, 11 through 54. Uh, long passage. We're going to divide that up. So the four of us, you'll hear the four voices from this team, uh, beginning with Sarah. And we're going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Sarah? Starting with verse 11 in chapter 27. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You say so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner, Jesus called, called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? for he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent a word to him, have nothing to do with the innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what should I do with the Jesus who is called the Messiah? All of them said, let him be crucified. Then he asked, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he would do nothing, But rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people of the whole answered, His blood be on us and on our children. So he released the rabbits for them. After flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. 
Then they put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they came upon a man from Cyrene named Simon. They compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots, then they sat down there and kept watch over him. Over his head, they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two bandits were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, also along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe it. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he wants to. For he said, I am God's Son. The bandits who were crucified with him also taunted him in the same way. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Lema, Sabathani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling Elijah. And once one of them ran and got a sponge and filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out to the tombs, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. Now when the centurion saw those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place. They were terrified and said, truly, this man was God's son. And that's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we've got uh, three questions to work with today. I think I'll set them out uh, all together, and then we'll pick off one at a time, but there is some relationship between all of them. So first question is, what impact does the festival tradition of a prisoner release have on you in the context of this day in the life of Jesus? And uh, the second one is, share your insights on the role in this gospel and through time of the line in verse 24, see to it yourselves. And in 2 and 43, we have an echo Pardon me, folks. In 42 and 43, we have an echo of situations in the life of Christ and temptations. How would you explain these verses to a newcomer 
to the gospel, especially in terms of the temptations of Christ and Matthew. But the first question is, what impact does the festival tradition of a prisoner release have on you in the context of this day in the life of Jesus? Sarah? feels like a scrap of bread being thrown to hungry people. Um, is it a fair exchange? Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I think Barabbas is a stand-in for us. We, the guilty, are given the get-out-of-jail-free card while a blameless innocent is slaughtered. What kind of collateral damage is it to set one free in exchange for the brutal killing of those that remain? Does this offer those in power with a way to excuse themselves from the violence that's being done? Does this afford the crowd an active engagement in the release of one, but the participation in the violence itself? The irony is that during Passover, it's the blood of the innocent that protects all of them. And I thought it was really interesting um, in Charles's section of the reading, there was a passage I hadn't noticed before, and it said, his blood will be on us and on our children, which is similar to what you would do at Passover when you would paint the Paschal Lamb's blood on the, the lintel of your door. That's my thinking. Thank you. Bill? Um, several things uh, are triggered by your question. You're talking about what impact does this tradition have? First of all, the word traditions. We all have traditions. <laughs> um, and they link us uh, communally and to the past and to the present and to the future. A couple of thoughts, Don. First of all, it reminds me, obviously, of the power of choices. We choose between justice or injustice, innocence or guilt. Pilate is faced with a choice. The crowd is faced with a choice. And Jesus is faced with a choice. And I'll say more later about what I perceive to be Jesus's choices at this time. Along with that, it reminds me of the reality that we all make trade-offs. Jacob and Esau and the porridge. Esau trading immediate physical gratification of his hunger for his inheritance. David made a moral trade-off that led him into a spiraling uh, set of circumstances. Uh, adultery, seeking to cover it up by having Bathsheba's husband, in effect, murdered, by being put in the front lines of battle. And now Pilate, and it's interesting, I've seldom heard ministers, and I, including myself, make much of Pilate's wife in this. There's a powerful poignancy, Don, for me in the brief quotations from Pilate's wife. Uh, don't, don't do this. Step away from this, Pilate, uh, because I've had this disturbing dream. And Pilate 
and his wife are clear about Jesus' innocence, and yet Pilate chooses to opt for expediency, short-term gain at the expense of deeper values, justice, mercy. This story is the very opposite of Micah 6 that we sing every Sunday in worship at Promise of the Christian Church, uh, at least in the traditional services. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. It's also, for me, Don, a reminder of what Matthew says earlier in his gospel when the disciples are being gathered as a group. It was a reminder that the disciple is not above his master. What was done to Jesus will, we learn later in the story, also was done to his followers. And my final comment, which I think makes this passage very contemporary, injustice and justice is both personal, individual, and systemic. That word that has become so weaponized and politicized, uh, injustice and justice is both personal, individual, and systemic. Thank you for the question, Don. Thank you. Coming to you in a second, Charles. I just uh, wanted to note that this Matthew section, I've had the same scripture, the same Bible with me since I was 13 years old. So there's not a lot of white space left in it. Uh, I have little pieces of paper stuck in it, and it's very precious to me because it has the voices, the words of people that are not with us anymore. A lot of memories there. This entire passage, white paper. I have no notes on it. Uh, my, and I, and as of this morning, after preparing for this for a week, I still have no notes on it. And I think it has something to do with, it, it's inexplicable in certain ways. Um, the randomness of what's called justice, the fiat of what takes place, the handing off of decisions is uh, is hard to bear and hard to put in writing. And uh, so I've got this giant passage with white, white margins, no marginalia at all. And that sent a message to me too, that the ministry of Jesus led to a random, random-like act pointed to that. Uh, it, you know, Jesus is going to ride through the gate. Jesus is, is, the mission is going to be completed. That's my Christ. It will be done. But that it led also into this is, is my part of my white pages. And then the irony that the liberation of the convicted for a man not yet judged is hard to bear. And then there's the release of this man on this particular day, this particular time that otherwise would not have been possible in some strange trade for Jesus. That tradition of the release makes it even more inexplicable. The uh, the time and place of it is just filled with so much danger. Uh, so that's what's uh, kind of the tone set for for this piece, at least this round of reading. Bill, uh, 
I really appreciate your comments on this. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on when we get to temptation. But, Charles, you get the last word on this first question. Any comments on this? No. I I mean, I'm sorry. I, I have been up a long time today. Um, and I don't it's hard to make the connection I guess that's the, that's the best way to put it okay thank you uh, and now uh, Bill Holt coming at you um, could you share your insights on the role in this gospel and I'd say through time of the line in verse 24 see to it yourself what do you think, Bill? Um, again, looking back on, like you look at the notes in your Bible, <laughs> I, as I reflect on my years as a pastor and preaching, I don't know that I ever focused on that, Don. So your your second question invited me uh, to focus where I had not really focused before. Um, the fuller context is so when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, that's a telling statement. It's already been acknowledged that he has the power to release or not release somebody. So to say that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself all of which is a grand lie to himself and to the people. So I sense uh, a kind of grandiosity, Don. Uh, this isn't really my problem. It, it, it's on you. And it was on both Pilate and, and the crowd. So there's a, a deflection here. It's on you. We've already, I've already commented, and Scripture makes it clear that Pilate saw him as innocent. Pilate had the power, we would today say the agency, to uh, acknowledge and uh, affirm Jesus' innocence, but he didn't. It reminds us also of the consequences of choices. Saying something is not our responsibility or that we have no part in it is a choice, delusional though it is. And that, therefore, there's clear denial here. I have no responsibility, yet I'm the one with the power to decide the fate of an innocent human being. And what it brings to my mind, Don, that's very captivating for me in the here and now, are efforts like, I think it's one is called the Innocence Project, people with the capacity by training and licensing and certification to re-examine. And perhaps we've all seen the documentaries of how difficult it often is to get the system to consider the possibility that there's been a miscarriage of justice, resistance to DNA testing, and often members of the prosecution and others will say, well, that's our system. The system found him guilty, like 
the system uh, is what we trust. Um, and I, I stand amazed at the dedication and investment of energy and time that some people put into exploring whether or not justice was done. So it reminds us that the power to maintain injustice is awesome. And it's a chilling thought, but it can motivate us to keep seeking to do justice. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the quote we're talking about is, see to it yourselves. See to it yourselves. And I I think it, there is a real mechanism here to not be responsible. We're really good at that. I think uh, it's one of the, I mean this in a very dark way, it's one of the great talents of human beings to say, I have a mechanism to not be responsible. And we create reams of laws and processes to move responsibility away uh, when the actual act of moving it out probably has the largest impact, uh, especially when you're dealing with somebody's liberty. Uh, I also think it's important with the mechanism that all these mechanisms that we create, which is what Christ has walked into, uh, is the willingness of the other end of the mechanism, whoever's catching it, the willingness to take it. You know, Pilate says, see to it yourselves, and the answer is, okay, no problem. There's always there's a catcher's mitt on the other side of this. It's not just, I've, I've, I've focused so much in my life on the washing of the hands and his behavior, I'm forgetting sometimes that uh, the human being on the other end goes, fine, I'll take it. Like being a judge, no problem. So the mechanism only works if we're willing to catch it on the other side. So on any given day, and I'm just emphasizing the randomness of this particular day, yeah, am I throwing it or am I catching it? I think I'm culpable on both sides of this one. Uh, so uh, then the, the other thing I was thinking about is that if you make the call, and I think this is implying what Pilate is saying, if you choose to make the call, then the process itself says that your call is deemed proper and just, just like that. Right? You take it. You accept it. Yes, I do. Therefore, it is proper and just. And what's surrounding all of this is the ministry of Jesus and the tradition of the supper, the supper, and what, what we do in terms of remembrance of the ministry and the sacrifice is the passing of the peace and the communion. And I, I think in terms of the, the brutality, the, the elegance of this literature is uh, this is also a dark side of the passing of the peace. You take it. You take the judgment. And I think that's, a, I, for me, a, a good parallel reading of this with take and eat. Take, remember, pass it, peace be with you, peace be with you. And in this case, it's another, a different kind of dark passing. You take responsibility for this. You make the call. You go forward. Thank you. I will. 
I will be the judge. Sarah, what do you think? It seems like the bystanders have been empowered as the ones who choose the outcome. Pilate seems to be wishing for some absolution to the carnage that's about to take place by purposely yielding his authority to the whim of the crowd rather than actively seeking justice for an innocent. And I call this plausible deniability. You've heard this word before, these words before. The impending riot is more threatening to Pilate than committing murder and the burden it would bring with it. What does that say about how Pilate values human life? What does that say about Pilate's value of justice? Of course, you know, the Roman core that was stationed in this place and time was there to keep order. So if the understanding of order is to um, dispel rioting, then Pilate feels that's the call he must make, I suppose. But I'm thinking about those times when we have yielded ourselves to the threat of disruption. Instead of choosing the more difficult path of justice, um, you know, I, I often, you know, am, I persuade myself to consider carefully the path of least resistance. Because although it may be less complicated, it's not often the right path for me. And and so I, I question that and I challenge um, everyone. I'm thinking of the road not taken as, as the option that should be considered more carefully. Um, so I, I, I wonder about when is it that I passively surrender my agency to someone else, entrusting them to make a decision that is valuable or essential to me. And and in passing that authority or that agency, um, I resign to a, a choice that I would not normally make. And And I... I think it's the go along to get along idea. It's the, I'm going to test this idea on someone or this, I'm going to throw this out to the wind and see which way the wind of the populace is going to blow. And if there's enough noise around it, I'm going to elect that as my platform and I'm going to move toward it. And I'm going to, if you will, whip the crowd into supporting a posture or a behavior or a stance. And I think that we are guilty as charged in this regard um, for the most part because we want to, um, it's often easier for other people to make those decisions and just passively agree to go along, to get along. And I think we've all seen in recent days not only in this passage, but in our lives, the cost that bears, the cost that extracts from us. So I, I'm reminded again how 
difficult it is to stand with justice rather than surrender to um, the anticipated riot. Thank you. Charles, your thoughts? No, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Let's get to the the third and the final question. Uh, In verses 42 and 43, we have an echo of situations in the life of Christ and temptations, especially in Matthew. How would you explain these verses to the gospel in terms of temptations? Uh, Sarah, what do you think? I think humanity's—let me say that right—humanity's messianic expectations and the incongruency of those with God's plan riddle all four gospels. I think that these verses reiterate that oppositional presentation and sound um, that oppositional presentation and sounds like the tempter's question in the desert. We're after Jesus is baptized over and over again. If you are, then do this, and and I'll give you whatever you want. As if bargaining was the game. I said this scene. This scene really presents us with um, a contrast between how humans respond and how God responds. And I think if I were trying to explain this to a newcomer, I would say this is an echo of how humanity's perspective or how people choose what they think they want instead of receiving what God would have them or give them. And and it's like, no, no, I, I would rather not have lifelong um, joy, I'd rather have that chocolate brownie right now. And I think it's, it's that basic, that we would rather have the immediate thing that's temporarily going to satiate what we're hungry for instead of getting what we really need. Thank you. Uh, I, that's helpful to me on the what God and man would do. I've just this this week is struck by the if then, if you are the son of God then, and the leap to the conclusion, if you are the son of God, obviously you would save yourself. But when I compare the two behaviors, we've got the request, you know, why don't you escape? Why don't you heal yourself? Why don't you conquer? Why don't you recover? Those words still apply to our understanding of the grace of God, what's happening here. But they also can be used for human beings. Why don't you escape? Well, there's another escape taking place here. Why don't you heal? There's another healing taking place. Why don't you recover? There's another recovery taking place. Why don't you conquer? There's another conquering taking place. So the language gets really fluid here. Uh, and then for the human side, the purely human side, why don't you compromise? 
Why don't you kick? Why don't you apologize? Why don't you reform? Which is a understandable pathway all through life. Uh, but I just that's the 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 literature ties to me ties the temptations in the desert directly to this that all and all through the Gospel of Matthew those temptations are over and over and over again uh, and it creates a contrast with what the real escape is the real heal the real recovery the real conquering. Charles, what about you? Any any thoughts on uh, this and its relationship with the temptation? No, I mean, I I every 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 week when we have these conversations, I'm always astounded by how the three of you were able to find and link and make comparisons to and bring forward new ideas and new insights which hadn't appeared before. So I'm I'm simply acknowledging your capacities and your skills and your care for, for me. Well, and, and uh, especially for our new listeners today, I want to acknowledge Charles's guidance, oversight, and counsel every step of the way in these programs uh, and especially in in the middle areas where we receive information and text and scripture that we're always surprised by. He's a good guide. Uh, Bill Hall, you get to wrap it up. Your thoughts on the disconnection of the temptations in uh, Matthew. First of all, I'll repeat what I said in the pre-recording. Uh, your questions for the first time that I recall uh, helped me link this to the temptation of Jesus in the desert after his baptism that we discussed some weeks ago. So thank you for that linking. And also I'll echo uh, Sarah's comments. This does, once you got my mind thinking this way about the link to the temptation, I think, Sarah, it does echo the voice of the tempter. Uh, to the point that I, my guess is Matthew, the writers, writer or writers of this gospel intentionally did that. I, I think it, it, it's like, Don, I thought, why didn't I think of that before, that linkage? Because uh, I think it's, it's clearly there. Um, it, if you will bear with me, I find it poignant to read the somewhat larger context of that. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking Jesus, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. And then it ends, the bandits who were crucified with him also taunted him in the same way. There's, there's the mocking, but there's a clear dynamic of grandiosity. That's what the temptation in the desert was about. It's grandiosity. You know, let your hunger of the moment be satisfied. Uh, bow down and worship uh, the rulers of this world. Throw yourself off the temple. Grandiosity. In contrast, Jesus was a servant leader. 
recently I was in a brief conversation with someone I didn't know well. We were chatting, and he was somewhat new to a job. And I said, how's it going? And he said, you know what, Bill? It's a large company, very dynamic, lots of responsibility. Our CEO is a true servant leader. And I said, what does that mean to you? He said, well, first of all, he's aware of what's going on. He manages by wandering around. He, he's in touch with the various parts of this process. And as much as possible, he lets people closest to the action make decisions. Now, he coordinates it. So he said, it's a joy to work under a true servant leader. Uh, and Jesus calls us to be servants. And this narrative does reflect the dynamics of Jesus's temptation. And here's something that I thought of for the first time on in something you said, Don, in your response to the second question. Jesus says in these whole 43 verses, three words, you say so. That had not caught my attention, unless I'm overlooking something and I'm open to be corrected. That's a powerful message. In the face of such injustice and human, the human capacity for injustice and destruction so powerfully on display, he says almost nothing. I don't know where to go with that. I don't want to... Um, make that the be-all and end-all, but as a person <laughs> who talks a lot and who verbalizes a lot uh, advocating for justice uh, in this whole passage, and if you say so, Jesus puts the focus back on the leader and the crowd. And um, sometimes, Don, my notes in with dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so I'll end with my thinking is still progressing. Thank you for the questions. Thank you. Thank you. And my, my margins remain blank now intentionally. I guess that maybe that's meant to be a mark of love I mean, in, inexplicable love that is involved in this passage and what Jesus is doing. Uh, well, thank you, folks. Uh Sea Presbyterian Church is at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmacia.org. That's P-A-L-N-A-C-E-I-A.org. That's the church that makes this podcast possible. And we have listeners from there just like we do from actually all over the world. And we, we thank you for being a part of this. We always look forward to your comments. Check out that site for great sermons, discussions, uh, disagreements, prayers, outstanding music, opportunities to take communion. And uh, you're always welcome, and we'll see you next time.